0: Well, we're sitting in the dipping room, Noah. <laughs> Did you know that? Is the dip- I thought it said the cupping, uh, the cupping room. The cupping room. The cupping room. The cupping room. It's not the dipping room. It's the cupping room. What? The cupping I don't know room. what that is. Nor do I. I mean, it's a coffee. It's right. a coffee thing. That we're sitting in. Well, I well, see- we, we will find out, unless I would like to keep it a secret, you know, and make it a running gag in the show. Hmm? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You know, I've been to this coffee place before, and I've never even
1: realized the cupping room was here. I've always it's just cupping. sat out in the public room. Yeah.
0: Yes. It sounds mildly erotic. It does. It's the cupping room. <laughs> it does sound a little bit. <laughs> I, don't think that it, I don't think it is, though. It everybody. seems to be like sort of an expert tasting room, right?
1: Yes. There's posters around that describe all the different elements of tastes of different kinds of, like it says, the art of aroma perception in coffee. Aroma perception? Yeah, it's, it's right
0: behind you. That's also mildly erotic.
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Especially when you read the subtitle, which in one case says, Aromatic Taints. Oh, no! A a subject upon which I myself am am
0: quite uh, (laughs) experienced. (laughs) Very funny. Well, that gets it off to a good start, doesn't it? you sure. Now, you you and I have known each other for a long time now. Yeah. How long do you think? 1977. (laughs) 1977. 1997. (laughs) 1997. I moved to Portland with 50 bucks in my pocket. I immediately got some work Mm -hmm. uh, at the Oregonian and at a radio station, but it wasn't enough to pay the bills. No. And then I saw that little ad for market research Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. at Market Decisions, and I walked in, and there was a very wild group of people, which included you.
1: I was definitely among the wildest group of people at that market research company yes, you were there was you know I like like with any with any sort of uh large employer of low wage uh workers there 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 was a, a great cross section of different sorts of people there and there always is that kind of crew that develops that are the party people that like they go out and get drunk at lunch and they're yes. always they're the smokers they're the cigarette smokers yes. and and yes. whatever else whatever the kind of smokers yeah uh and you know, I, I, I immediately fell in with those guys. So that was that was who you saw. It was all me yeah, and yeah. Larry and Greg Furnace and, and like all these guys.
0: Loner female poets. A lot of them. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was a bunch of misfits. Well, sure. Well, yes. Sure. <laughs> and and I fit right in, mm-hmm. <laughs> even though I was a lot older than you guys uh, at the time, and and, and remain so. <laughs> But uh, it, was a, it was an interesting experience, that's for sure. Um. That
1: was my first market research job. Really? Was it for you as well? Oh, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I had done a lot of really terrible jobs before, even phone bank stuff. What I did the, like some.
0: What was the worst job you had had? <laughs> the,
1: worst job, the worst job I ever had, yeah. and it, it was just, just shortly before my market research job, yeah. was I worked as a line picker. At a at a paper recycling plant line picker a line picker at a pa- at a paper recycling plant on the graveyard shift what does a line picker do you can imagine the <laughs> a big truck shows up at that the paper recycling plant yeah. that's just full of just undifferentiated the contents of paper recycling bins uh-huh. right like they don't The guy, you know, when when the garbage guy comes by your house, he doesn't, like, go through the garbage to make sure everything's kosher. He just dumps it all in there, recycling the same way, of course. So this was before, as far as I know, a whole lot of, like, civic recycling. It wasn't a city project, but Uh it was, like, the big recycling bins from offices and stuff, honestly. Uh So, you know, all night long— There's a line of trucks lined up outside the plant filled with the unsorted contents from paper recycling bins, and they just dump them onto a conveyor belt, which carries them up to this sort of another conveyor belt that goes across a big catwalk. The catwalk is over several big walled-in areas, and each, each one of these areas has a chute sort of that you have access to. And then and then I yes. would have a, a position up there on the catwalk on one or the other side of the conveyor belt next to a shoot on my left and a shoot on my right. And for example, they'd be like, so you Noah right now are you're doing cardboard in the left chute and uh, white paper in the right chute, uh-huh. like this. Right. Yeah. So, and, and then there'd be several other people working up there at the same time. So all of us with our, with our gloves on, are just digging through piles of basically garbage (laughs) uh, trying to take out the good recyclable stuff and put it in the right categories Uh of things. And it would be, it's an eight hour shift and And it never stopped when it's time. Well, they'd have two 10 minute breaks and one 30 minute break, (laughs) which were signaled by an actual like buzzer, a (laughs) deafening Ah. buzzer. (laughs) Right. And so when it was time for the 10 minute break, we really would all just sit down in place (laughs) for 10 minutes (laughs) And just try to catch our breath and maybe, like, have a water bottle that we drink out of, this kind of thing. And then for the half hour of the lunch break was barely enough time to just get down to the lunchroom and just wolf down some kind of lunch. And then get right back up onto the conveyor belt again. That was an intense job, man.
0: Did you find other things, other objects? Oh, yes. Like, what, for instance? I I found the dead cat one time. No. Yes, I did.
1: No. Yes, I did. Somebody
0: recycled their cat? Yes.
1: I found the dead cat. And I I pulled it out and held it up to show it to, like, the supervisor that was running the line that night. And he snatched it out of my hand, spun it over his head, and threw it yards away and got a direct hit right into the bailing machine with the cat. Which means it ended up in some actual bale of paper that got shipped off to whatever the next stage (laughs) in the recycling process is. Intense people work there. I think people that were both, you know, intense to begin with, because they would be looking for this kind of job, yeah, as I was. Uh-huh. But then also, just that place drive you a little crazy after a while. And I only worked there for a few months. There were guys that worked there for, you know, five years, oh ten God. years. It was just that was their life. Was just and digging through the with, paper, with big pay. The money was not good. <laughs> the money was not good, and and. Uh, yeah, I don't know how far up the chain you would have to make it before you're actually making a decent living at a place like that. I mean there was there was a whole there was a whole there was a the hierarchy? There was a whole hierarchy, yeah, for sure, <laughs> for sure. But even even people pretty high up the chain seemed to me like maybe they were living in a refrigerator box somewhere. I mean, <laughs> they had, they had not, worked
0: their way up. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Where was this? Uh Portland. It was um Oh really? Where was I not I'm not gonna say the name of the company. Uh, I think po- that made, they, they they'll come after me. It was it was a recycling <laughs> it was like way up in um it was kind of close to like the like the um the new copper penny.
0: It's way that up there. Sense. Somewhere. Yeah way, yeah, way southeast. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think those their workers may hang out there. I think that I think they did. Yeah. Although
1: uh, <laughs> unlike at Market Decisions Corporation, I didn't make much of an effort to befriend the workers. I didn't find a lot of kindred spirits at this yeah, recycling the, plant. the funny
0: thing is, you know, uh we're, we're still friends with some of those people 14, 15 years later. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. 16 years later. How long is it? Uh, whatever it is. It's a long time. Like that, yeah. yeah. It's a long time. 17 I mean, years later.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, l- less so. There, there's not really anybody from that crew that I spend time with regularly. But yeah. for a long time, there was. I ended up living with a bunch of those guys. Right. And I ended up right. – my best friend in the world, of course, Victor Santiago, yeah. Yeah. Was yeah. What, I met him there. Yeah. And a, for, for a long time, my uh, my basic social scene in yeah. Portland was kind of – He was my biggest fan for
0: a while. Santi? Yeah. The biggest fan of your writing. Of me, yes. What is you overall? And, and radio and stuff. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I had I had a, a radio talk show at the, at the at the same time I was working, making phone calls for a B, PG&E and mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. trying to keep people on the phone for hour long surveys that they weren't interested in. Oh yeah. Uh and uh and, and and I didn't get a lot of calls on on my radio show because it was a, a, the radio station had been something else and it had changed. And nobody knew it and nobody, you know, there there wasn't a lot of marketing and although it was a big company. Uh, and so people, a lot of people didn't know, and the, people didn't know me then either cause I just come to town. And so he was a regular caller mm-hmm. and I would depend on him to be a caller in that show. Um, but, uh, uh, so, but you're not from
1: Portland. No, nope. I was born in Los Angeles yes, in 1974 at, uh, Hollywood Presbyterian Hospital. Right. Yeah, and then spent um, I spent my whole childhood moving back and forth between L.A. and Kansas City, Missouri. Wow which is just it's a whole different sort of a place, especially back then. Yeah. I mean, I suppose nowadays Kansas is. city probably is a whole lot like every other city because all the cities are kind of the same now, but yeah. this was back when KC still had a definite regional character, like working yeah. class. C- cattle walked
0: the street, right?
1: I didn't, I didn't ever see any <laughs> cattle in the streets of Kansas city, but it was definitely true that you, you didn't have to get too far outside of town before it was big cattle ranches and big <laughs> cornfields and all that. It was, it was a lot of that in the surrounding environment. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I spent my whole childhood moving back and forth between those two because, well, was a pretty sort of an unstable lifestyle like me and my mom were pretty poor and it was always a lot of we moved around a lot so when things would really go bad really hit the fan we would go back to kansas city and live with the grandparents for a little while uh and i I eventually moved here from uh los angeles when i was 22 just about maybe about a year before i met
0: you wow Mm -hmm. okay we'll get back to that but you know one thing uh, i i never know exactly what what to say you are Hmm. I always call you an impresario. I, get a I always lot of that like name. that name mm-hmm. because that, that's that's your character. You have an impresario, you know, kind of personality. But what are you? Well, uh, I I mean I I am somewhat of an impresario. I, yeah. I think that. Um, and so how
1: would you define that? That does a good job of of covering all the things that I've done. How would I define it? I I might be wrong about this, but I think that an impresario is a person that. Brings together different great artists and creates uh, shows to 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 spotlight those artists. Who kind of brings brings together collaborations between artists and creates big shows out of them. I think that's what an impresario basically is. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm I'm always always have my uh, always have my ear to the ground. I'm trying to find out who the interesting, talented new artists are in town because that's what really interests me. I'm really mostly inspired by other people's work and ideas and and all that. And so uh, when I find great people, I'm, I'm always on the lookout for ways to combine what they do and, into something larger, sort of a big, spectacular-type performance. Uh, and, yeah, I've been doing that for a long time, since uh, way back then. And, and what I, but what I do these days, almost exclusively, is the Wanderlust Circus. Yes. And I'm the ringmaster of the Wanderlust Circus, and I, I sing for the band, the Wanderlust Orchestra. And I still, you know, produce and uh, direct and write the shows for and the so, most part.
0: And so you're an impresario and also an
1: interlocutor. Am I? Yes. What is that? What's an interlocutor?
0: <laughs> an interlocutor was a kind of the facilitator during the show of uh, uh, in minstrel minstrelsy days. Oh,
1: yes. Well, yeah, that's right up my alley.
0: <laughs> anyway, and vaudeville.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: well, then yes, I'm, I do that. All right. All right. I I'm, I don't think anybody's going to be bored by this, but uh, before we go any further let's talk about your holiday shows oh yeah good idea yeah
1: (laughs) there are there are two distinct shows i'm doing them both in december Uh and they're both at the alberta rose theater Uh one of these is the white album christmas which is uh there's a live band called the nowhere band that plays the entirety of the beatles white album which of course those that are familiar with the album it's not enough to just have a little fab four type rock and roll ensemble so there is a, a rock band at the core of it, but also a string section and a horn section. And Mr. Carl solo vox is on the keyboard, so oh, he's yeah. able to create a lot of the other sounds, the kind of Mellotron sounds that are behind a lot of the White Album. And there's a Mellotrons whole... are great, aren't they? Oh, yeah. yeah. Jeez. He doesn't have an actual Mellotron, of course, but you oh, know nowadays yeah. that's all just a computer chip. Yes. So he's got all those sounds. Uh You know, stuff like the sound of the plane landing at the beginning of back in the USSR. So he he creates all that. And there's a whole bunch of singers that come through and sort of take turns doing the songs. It's a real, it's an incredible all-star band. And that's over here at stage left. And the other half of the stage is filled with circus performance from the Wanderlust Circus. So we have acrobats and aerialists and jugglers and contortionists and dancers and just all sorts of wonderful people. uh, All doing specially choreographed routines to the songs from the White Album. What does Mm -hmm.
0: it have to do with Christmas? Uh. Well,
1: (laughs) I suppose in its bones, not much. John Averill is the director of the Nowhere Band, and Mm -hmm. perhaps more famously of the March 4th Marching Band. Of course. And uh, he has always titled his events that he produces with these kind of cute little puns like that. And that's Mm -hmm. the White Album Christmas is Mm -hmm. one of those. You know, it's White Christmas and it's the White Album. And he's always done those. He did did a, a, a... combination Chinese and Mardi Gras event called the Chow Yun Fat Tuesday, (laughs) right? All of his events are like this. Yeah. yeah. There was was an event that was all U2 and uh, the Pogues and Sinead O'Connor that happened in uh, April that was called the Irish Spring Equinox, (laughs) right? All all, all of his events were always titled this way. He's a clever guy. So White Album Christmas just started out as one of those, like one of his little jokes. And he thought of bringing us in on it just because, I don't know, we're friends and have worked together a lot. Uh, and so we do it during during Christmas for that reason. Now, in terms of the actual content of the show, I always write – every year I write a new through-line story, uh, which is to say it's kind of the framing story that ties all the different acts together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's pretty much always rather Christmas-themed. So, what, uh, what will this year's be? Well – I don't want to give away too much, but this year's year's throughline story involves a time machine Uh built by our chief contraptioner, Mr. Creature, uh, because he wants to make it a more authentic show. So he's built a time machine that will draw objects from the 1960s into the present day that we can use in the show to make it a more authentically 1960s type of show. Uh, But then uh, the plan, uh, the plot thickens when he brings up an actual authentic 1960s hippie. Into the present day, and we try to find a place for that person in our uh, production.
0: Wait a minute, you're looking at one. Oh, I know.
1: <laughs> right, I was going to say, if you're free, <laughs> well, I would. Except, th- I,
0: I, I would, and I hesitate to say this because I, I always get slammed for it. But I've never liked the Beatles. Wow. Yeah. You yeah. know, I
1: think you might have mentioned that. Were you like
0: a Rolling Stones I man? Get, I was a Rolling Stones man. I just, I, 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 I was in, I was in high school, mm-hmm. and the Beatles came out. And I said, these people are doing Chuck Berry, right? Badly. Little Richard, even more so. Well, uh, they- yeah, but for me, it was Chuck Berry they were doing right. badly, so I didn't like that. And then, mm-hmm. in my in my twelfth grade class, was was a girl named Wilma Spalter. Wow. And she
1: what a beautiful name. Yes.
0: <laughs> like <laughs> she decided that she was going to be a Liverpudlian, oh. and she even affected the accent. And that just was the combination of you know them messing up my hero Chuck Berry. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what he did sexually at that time. Nice. Uh, no one did <laughs> really. Well, only yeah, really a select few. A little bit, yeah. Um, <laughs> messing up my Chuck Berry, and then uh, the insult of having a classmate act stupid, mm-hmm. right? And then I just never liked them. Mm-hmm. You know, I just I was a Stones guy. I was a street guy. You know. Right, you can either you can be a Beatles guy or a Stones
1: guy, right. or if you really want to go crazy, you can be one of these guys. It's like no, the greatest rock band of the '60s is the Zombies, or something. You can be like zombie. some other weird early. You know, I was the Stones and it's the Kinks. A, it's all about the Kinks, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can you can choose one of the outliers. Anyway, <laughs> the Hollies, all the way. No, no. Everything, everything else is
0: long, yeah. cool, woman in a black dress. Yes, but other than mm-hmm. that, you can have um, <laughs> So, uh, yeah, you'll have to find another hippie for that. Sorry. Oh, that's okay. Well, you know, we aren't actually using a genuine
1: hippie. We're using a simulated hippie because, of course, they're supposed to be, uh, you know, not, not one that we're meeting in the world today, but that yeah. we're drawing yeah. forward through the uh, oceans of time. I
0: actually grew my hair back in the in the uh, mid-90s. Mm-hmm. I, I had had this horrible experience where I, I had this – total life crash, Right. ended up driving a cab mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. a couple of years because I was trying to kill myself and everything, you know, I mean, passively, <laughs> and but then I, you know, kind of started to get out of it, and I took a job as, as a, um, uh, a, a party and wedding DJ, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and at the time, I decided to grow my hair long again. And I grew it down to my shoulders. It makes you look like a fun guy,
1: like the kind of guy you'd want to have DJing at your exactly, wedding. Like, exactly, yeah.
0: And and I and I grew my hair back again. All of a sudden, I was seen differently because because I, I got a girlfriend. She made me cut it off, and then I stopped getting tips. But mm-hmm. but it was a great experience to, to to you know sort of recapture my my hippie there with the long hair. It was cool. Right, yeah. Right. Anyway. Uh, Should I talk about the other show? There's also I another, want you to talk about the other show. There's a whole other holiday show. I know so that. that, which that I, and, I, and I absolutely love. That. Not that I don't. Not that I don't like. You know, White Album Christmas. I'm just not a Beatles fan. But mm-hmm. the other show is just absolutely wonderful.
1: Thanks. Yeah. So the White Album show is the fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh, and then the tenth, eleventh, and twelfth. They're yeah. doing seven nights of White Album. Wow. And if you're high, I know. And then we are immediately leaving to start the the road dates for the other show, and then bringing it here to Portland. And that mm-hmm. is a Circus Carol. It's wonderful. Thanks. It's just the best. So you know, it's like it's the story of Scrooge and the ghosts yes. and all that. It's a, it's yeah. a Christmas Carol with Three leg Torso again. Yes, indeed. Oh, the music so is done live by Three Legged Torso, yes. one of my favorite bands yes. in the whole world. Everyone, they're so great. Yeah. And they do for this one, they do very Three Legged Torso like arrangements of Christmas songs, yes. and holiday music, yeah. mostly Christmas. But there is one Hanukkah song because we have Eric Stern playing the Ghost of Hanukkah Present. <laughs> <laughs> he gets to come out and. He gets to, you know, I mean, he's, he was is, was raised in a semi-traditional Jewish family. He's yeah. he's pretty into Judaism. Yeah. He like goes to from Vagabond Opera from Vagabond oh, Opera, right? He like goes to temple and celebrates the holidays and all this stuff. So he gets to come out and just Jew it up extremely. Like he has the little the little
0: braids and the little tassels on his belt and uh, <laughs> plays the accordion and does the the a they, 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 they are the braids are called payas. Yes. Oh wow! This is great I point. once did a TV story on a on a Hasidic um racehorse trainer ah oh, yeah and he had to pass just like the horse Ah right. It <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's called a fetlock, I believe, on a horse. On a on, on a guy, it's called a pass. Anyway. Wow. So, but so I, right, love, so I love I Eric Stern, man. He's just he's so too. good. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, he's great. And it's got circus people as well. It's got a Charlie Brown, who's a juggler, plays uh, mm-hmm. Bob Cratchit, and yeah. Russell Bruner is the young Ebenezer Scrooge at mm-hmm. the at the party scene in Christmas Pass. The dancer. Yeah, yeah. Russell Bruner is an incredible swing dancer yes. and uh, other things too, a burlesque dancer, and acrobat, and yeah. he's a multi talented guy. Uh, and me, I'm Scrooge, so of I get my course. I get my old age makeup and get to be real grouchy and mean to everybody. Uh, yeah, well, it's it's, it's an incredible character, show. a little bit. I mean, even more so. <laughs> it's you know the, I, I basically take my my actual real life backstage persona and, and magnify it <laughs> to a proper vaudevillian, uh yeah. caricature of myself. And that that show is the nineteenth, um, twentieth, and twenty-first is uh, the Circus Carol show. Yeah, so all told, I'm doing something like. 17 nights in december three of which are out of town we're doing ashland and corvallis and everett washington some big theaters in those towns and then doing these ones here it's just going to be the daunting and insane plus for that matter I, I'm, I'm doing the third which is the night immediately before opening night for white album that's the big band showcase with the wanderlust circus orchestra which is our house band mm-hmm. which is like a big 10 person swing band yeah. we're doing that at dante's on the 3rd of december uh, which is that's that's kind of the project that's closest to my heart right now i've been really having a great time for the past couple of years singing with this big swing band
0: and are you the musical director or who's the musical director uh paul evans is the
1: musical oh, director yeah, yeah, yeah. who's a wonderful uh multi-instrumentalist who yeah. plays with a lot of bands shoehorn's in that band shoehorn is in the band the tap dancing saxophone player yes. uh and you know other great people um anna leander who is the singer for anna uh, Anna Paul and the Bearded Lady yes. sings and plays trombone. And we got an <laughs> incredible drummer, Joe Hageley, who's – he's in a lot yeah. of your local swing bands and yeah. stuff. It's really yeah. wonderful. TJ Arco, the xylophone player from, from three, three Leg Torso, is in the band. Yeah. Griff Bear on the fiddle. And Chris White and Jeff Holt from our old, our old band, Juan Profit Organization, do the guitar and the bass respectively and but jason wells plays trumpet in the band yeah it's an incredible
0: now now, you and i sort of we didn't we never we've never lost contact but there were a couple years um between market decisions and when you were uh when you started that fabled series at that little tiki bar the tiki bar right that was the wasn't that the jumping off point for you yeah.
1: What was, the yes. name of that? what was the name of that bar? Uh, the bar was the Jasmine Tree. Yes. yes. The Jasmine yes. Tree. Up by PSU. Tiki Lounge, it was. It was right by PSU. It's yeah. been torn down since then. Yeah. And I think maybe it's the site of the streetcar turnaround or something like that? Uh-huh. No? Uh-huh. At any rate, yeah, that was where I first started doing shows, and that was, uh, it was experimental music and yeah. some level of performance art and dance stuff in there as well. And, experimental.
0: Uh, for god's sake you had smegma for christ's sake we did we put
1: smegma yes (laughs) yeah i you know i i hooked up with the uh a group called the radon collective that's an international noise collective and then also locally with a nonprofit called two girls performative arts Mm -hmm. and uh 36 invisibles was my own little organization it was like me and two other guys and that 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 jasmine tree uh, series was kind of our contribution to this greater work that was happening with radon and two girls and a whole scene of other similar collectives all over the place. so yeah, we brought Smegma out and Steve McKay and all kinds of i mean i I, I think it was really a, a high quality series, although of course it's really only if you're into that sort of thing it wasn't it was not for everybody
0: <laughs> yeah um, and and so uh, you had a band also at that time called. Nequam, nequacquam vacuum. Yes, Mm -hmm. yes. Which means
1: the void does not exist. It's from the Bible. Mm -hmm. It's like an old. It's a. It's a. A a statement that has. uh, It's been interpreted in a lot of different ways by different sort of mystery cults and like esoteric, uh, magical practitioners and things over the years. So that was. uh, I, I intended to. Referred all that stuff, and and also it seemed to me meaningful because we were a strictly improvisational group. Who, we used all uh, homemade instruments and found objects and things like that to make our music for the most part. So it felt like that sort of thing of like bringing this sort of pure sound out of the void. <laughs> with no planning and no, uh-huh. you know, no limitations uh-huh. and like that. So, yeah, Nick, welcome back to you. My man, I played with that band for years. We toured all over the place and released albums mm-hmm. and stuff. It was it was really was my central creative work yeah. for many years.
0: Uh, and it, I believe it was at that during that period that I did a TV story on you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you were playing for Butoh Dancers. Yeah, I did a lot of that. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the first group of Butoh Dancers
1: that I got with was called the P.A.N. They're from Seattle. Uh, I met them through my brother, my, my kid brother, Sam Mickens, who is sort of a famous singer and guitar player nowadays operating out of Brooklyn. Uh, he introduced me to those guys when he was living in Seattle, and I immediately hit it off with them and started doing a lot of collaborations. Uh, at first, I was doing music for them, and then after a while, I started training in the dance with them as well and actually did some dance performance with them, which was the first, first and pretty much only such performance I've done in my life. I'm not much of a dancer, but... You know, I got real serious. It was something very inspiring about Butoh for me. Okay.
0: Do do me a favor. Compare being inside the music playing for Mm Butoh and being inside the music of a swing band. Hmm. Well, it's different. And I feel that um, with the Butoh
1: music, I always felt like there was this perfect place out in the dark beyond Mm -hmm. where – we all could meet and we all could find this inspiration in the moment that was driving what all of us were doing and of course the butoh choreography itself is not a traditional choreographic form butoh choreography is very image based and has kind of a like a pathworking element to it in terms of like this whole thing you're supposed to be imagining and meditating upon as yeah. you dance
0: for so the outsider its zombie dancing it can look
1: like that there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of angles on buto but yeah. yeah that certainly is the 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 most uh readily uh readily thought of form of buto is yeah the really slow moving and everyone's with their eyes rolled back in their head right. it's intense it's a very internal it's yeah. very internal sort of a process uh that would be difficult to summarize honestly without going through lots of buto yeah. training yourself uh it has that sort of mystery aspect like it's kind of hard to define exactly what it is and how it works but uh Anyway, so there was that sort of feeling of that we were all meeting in some other space. There was some place beyond the actual moment in that room that was where all of our uh, music and movement was coming from. Whereas in playing for a swing band, I feel like it has that sort of improvisational angle Mm -hmm. to an extent. But the framework is a lot more developed. It's a lot more present. In the players and the audience uh experience of making the music, mm-hmm. and so that place on the stage in the room with the audience, with the musicians is primary I feel like I feel it's, when, when I'm playing with the swing band it's very located in the place and time that it's happening and uh you know i don't have any um formal musical training, although i've been singing in bands since I was a kid I mean that's something i 've done a whole lot of, and that's what I draw upon to sort of semi keep up with this stage full of really, really great world-class musicians that I'm playing with. So yeah, I've got to pay attention to the key that we're singing in and I've got to pay attention <laughs> to the chord changes and I've got to pay attention to the melody of the song. And I have yeah. to be very, very, um, very aware yeah. in not much room for spacing out. No, no. And it's in something that's more, more of the way that I experience my day-to-day life. Whereas there's a great awareness and a great, um, amount of focus that it took to make the Nikwakum Vacuum music and play for the Butoh dancers too. I mean, I couldn't just let it all hang out. I had to be very uh, focused in on what we were doing to make it all sound good, even though it was literally like I was banging on a pile of metal. Yeah. But, but I mean, you heard the music. It, yeah. it does. It, it didn't just sound discordant and noisy. It has a very musical mm-hmm. sort of, I thought, beautiful sound to it, mostly. So, uh, yeah, it's just, it, it's real different. I feel like that's the major difference, is that when I'm playing for a swing band, I'm I'm my normal self, my everyday self, yeah. in the room on the stage. I'm very present in this kind of reality of what we're doing, whereas in the like quantum vacuum, it was all about a focus on some other conceptual space, and what was happening in the room would I would almost you know in, at our best, I felt like I was almost not aware of the the
0: space and time that we were in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was it during that period of time or, or shortly after that period of time that you got into the circus stuff?
1: Yeah. Yeah. You uh, talked about two girls, performative arts. They, they existed before I ever got involved and they had a whole history going back to the, the old days of Portland. Uh, you know, they would be in like PDXS magazine and stuff yes. like that. You can, you can get the old clippings of them. So uh, I came along. I moved here from LA and I was hanging out with the goths basically and the freaky goths and the... Uh, Found them through that. What was it, what was it about the freaky goths that attracted you? Well, that was the friends that I moved here with. When I oh. when I moved when I moved to Portland, I moved with my entire social scene. All moved here together, uh-huh. uh, like ten of us or something. Like one, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah, like well, like eight of us all moved here as a group. And so we were just immediately we were all kind of kind of gothy, sort of a bunch of gothy like ex drug addicts, uh, you know, weirdos that uh, and, and artists. What does gothy mean to you? Gothy. Well, we 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 wore a lot of black, and <laughs> yes. we had weird weird freaky hair, and would wear like some weird makeup, a lot of eye makeup and pale uh, stuff. And, and how know, is that different from how you are
0: now? Well, look at me. I'm not like that now. Today, I'm, I'm wearing a nice brown today, plaid suit. And, and your hair is not any different. 80, 80 different colors today, but it could mm, be tomorrow.
1: Sometimes it is. Yes,
0: I, I, I've, I've sort of become a little bit more of a circus type of guy
1: nowadays. Yeah. You know, the goth scene is uh, it's 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 ailing yeah it's getting to be you go out to a goth club and it's like pretty empty a lot of the time yeah. and they're li- they're still listening to the music we were listening to twenty years ago it's yeah. it's become like a vintage type Most of scene. them our home
0: and take care of the kids that too Or dead uh, yeah
1: well or or else dead yeah, yeah. The, so that's how we were you know we yeah. we were all just making that jump yeah. where we had been crazy sleazy teenage goths like playing in bands and doing lots of drugs, and then mm-hmm. all of us had sort of decided it was time to maybe look for something else and <laughs> that we couldn't find it in los angeles so we moved here, and I'm sad to say, actually, that almost all of those people that I moved here with, uh, like, backslid and moved back to L.A. and started banging dope and <laughs> hanging out, and you know, they they, they all kind of like went back into that lifestyle again, at least for a while. Although I, I think they're all pretty much clear of it now, from what I know. But anyway, so I found the goths here, right? I was hanging out with them. Then two girls was always had a root in this sort of dark arts community that's mm-hmm. sort of an adjunct to the goths it's like goths that actually do something instead yes. of just going to the club and hanging around uh and two girls had a connection to a group called chaosmosis and that's the first circus people that i met in portland Now, Chaosmosis was that john averill that's john averill's yes. old group right to, to come full circle john averill yeah. who he had not yet started it, march 4th yeah
0: those were great events
1: oh yeah the old chaosmosis events yeah. were great yeah. and uh we we collaborated a lot two girls and chaosmosis um, and there was a guy who was real involved in two girls named Jonas Nash, who was a, a, a rigger for the Cirque du Soleil. And so he had a real interest in a lot of underground circus stuff that was happening at that time. And then also uh, there was Sinferno Cabaret, which is the big kind of circus, fire dancing, go-go dancer thing that happens every Sunday at Dante's. And that was just getting started around that time. So it was through all of that scene. Back then, Sinferno had a lot more of this sort of performance art stuff in it. So I ended up actually performing at Sinferno with Soraya, the ritualist throat singer yes. Enrique Ugalde, who since then has also gone on to be a big world-recognized artist. Yeah. We were all just a bunch of crazy kids then. you know. We, like, we, <laughs> but at that time, nothing that any of us did was known outside of a relatively small subculture in Portland. We just didn't have this kind of national or international uh, right. exposure at that hey, time. Hey,
0: who, who was covering that at the time? You were a time. I was. You That's were covering true. it.
1: <laughs> yeah, man. You and like uh, a few other people. Who was that? Like John Graham. Yeah. He was. Al- he he yeah. he he always gave us a little mention in the papers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. a select few. So uh, that was how I met these circus people, and I, I was aware of them and kind of knew them a little bit. But since I was in the larger scheme of things, I was doing more of this noise and buto and weird transgressive art stuff. And they were in the same circle, but they were doing this kind of more bright, exciting, festive, burning man circus stuff. Uh, we didn't really cross over that much in those days, but I knew them. And so then what happened was, that was the, the moment where I started producing circuses. Uh, I was emceeing the MoCastra. It's a big improvisational yes. orchestra at the liminal space.
0: Yeah, I think you were there. I was there the 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 uh the the night he destroyed a piano that's the one that and night people got really really upset. Oh yeah. He took a sledgehammer to it. Mm-hmm. And they were they, I remember they came out of the audience and tried to stop him. People tried to stop him. Yeah, that yeah. always happens.
1: But you know, I feel like <laughs> they always happens. They weren't they weren't really they, they didn't have the courage of their convictions though cuz they all went up there to stop him and then when Most Iano, the buff little crazy sweaty man with a sledgehammer in his hand <laughs> turned around to face them, they all sat back down pretty quick. They didn't <laughs> nobody was really prepared to uh, sacrifice themselves. It was shocking. To save the piano sure so this guy was there that night uh-huh. uh and he uh he saw me emceeing that show because you know I, I used to emcee a lot of the two girls stuff and 36 invisible stuff just sort of for want of anybody else to do it i i, I did not think of myself as a serious emcee at that time but i got the gift of the gab and a nice suit and so they would just have me go up there and say a few words so this guy um saw me up there and his name is tony st Clair who at that time he was running uh, third floor uh, third floor improv, which was like a local improv, sketch comedy kind of troupe. Um, and he had in some way or another hustled up a deal with the McMiniman brothers uh-huh. to start doing a circus show at the Crystal Ballroom. But they were trying to be like the next Teatro Zinzani, which is a, a successful circus dinner theater in Seattle and, and now in San Francisco as well. So he saw me emceeing and he approached me and asked me to be the ringmaster mm-hmm. in his circus. And I said, yes. Then what quickly became clear was that he didn't really have a, any circus performers that he even knew. Mm-hmm. People he knew were actors who wanted to portray some circus related roles, uh, but didn't really know how to do any circus tricks or anything. So... I did know such people through Chaosmosis and Sinferno and Jonas and all that, so I offered to bring a lot of those folks in. And that's what ended up happening was this, without maybe intending it to be, it was a real coming together of sort of this mainstream theater crowd, you know, somewhat of a mainstream theater crowd, and this freaky underground circus crowd Uh People that I think normally never would have worked together.
0: That was when circus was spelled with a K. It was a lot of the time. C I R K.
1: We did a lot of that then. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, The whole the whole underground circus world at that time was well. It was very underground. It was not it was not uh, the kind of um, above the board stuff you see nowadays that's getting grant money and getting profiled on television. We were all in very much the same world as you know artists, starving artists, and. You know, very unusual stuff. So, did, so I brought them together. We did, did one show, and that was my first circus show.
0: Did you or did you not hang from hooks during one of those shows? Uh, that that was the next circus, okay. actually. All right, now hold on. But yeah, we're I did. Take, I did a lot of hanging from hooks. That's we're, sure. we're we're going to take a little coffee break here oh, for, for a minute. I've got some coffee, and break. then we'll 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 talk about Noah, Mickens hanging from hooks. <clears> I get warmed right up. Back. Keith and Gleason, mm-hmm. uh, coffee shop conversations. Tom D'Antoni and Noah Mickens. And when we last left our story, uh, Noah was going to tell us why on earth he would hang from hooks and what it was like. Hooks. Yes. Well, let's
1: see. Uh, you a, know, it was
0: kind of a hook. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it was my hook. You, you got to have
1: <laughs> one of those these days. Want <laughs> yeah. to make it in the yeah. underground show business? Yeah. <laughs> Why'd I do it? I mean, to begin with it, it's not like it was my idea or anything there was uh, there was an existing the devil made you do it. It was really the idea of right this this, this the devil incarnate <laughs> or in this case, I mean it was a you know there was a whole history of this type of hook suspension performance that goes back to. Oh, I think the earliest stuff was like in the nineteen seventies. This guy Fakir Mustafar is one of the real like pioneering hook suspension guys. He would like hang from clotheslines that went between buildings in New York City. Like, he'd do it himself, like stick hooks through his chest and, you know. And actually, and course, you thought this was a good idea. Yeah. yeah. And of course, he was inspired by, uh, you know, old like Native American rituals, the Okipa Sundance type ritual and things like this and some sadhu kind of stuff from India. You know, th- there's... Uh, there's a whole, a whole, there's several world traditions that involve various forms of like pain threshold ritual and, you know, sort of like a self mutilation, like body modification type ritual that, uh-huh. that go back for thousands of years. So, Fakir, Mustafar, and this other guy, Stellark, was a big part of that early stuff. And there's kind of this early movement of people doing all that. Um, and so. That was way before I got involved in it. In, in Portland, at the time that I first got into hook suspension, uh, the cats that were most associated with it were a group called Shift, was run by Mike Pitts, who's a. I don't know that I don't know that his I hope his names his name enters into the annals of Portland art history because <laughs> the stuff they did was really intense and beautiful and inspired a lot of people, but it was just so. Unusual. It was so weird and, and disturbing looking that it, it never got a lot. It was never in the paper or they never put them on OPB or anything, you know. But man, they were great, shifted some great stuff. And it was connected to, there was a guy called Dale Morris who I worked with quite a bit then. And uh, he had his own whole thing that went by different names, actually. Transformium, it was sometimes called. And he did these things. So th- there was this existing subculture of pain threshold performers and body mod performers uh, here in town already that I knew, again, through Two Girls, through my involvement with, with Two Girls Performative Arts. So, me and Tony St. Clair, we did that one big circus show, right? And it was big. We, like, sold out the crystal ballroom. It was in all the papers. It was on TV. It was vast, right? But that did not have any of these hooks and things. It, it had fire, and it had more traditional circus arts, aerial dance, and uh, juggling, and fire-eating, and blowing, and a sword-swallower, and stuff like this. It was this kind of deal. But it was it was very, um, it had a kitschy kind of vaudevillian aspect to it kind of a lot more like the shows i do now actually because uh, i i no longer do shows that have hook suspension and <laughs> things like that And then that was it was a phase as it turns out it was just experimenting <laughs> so like when your sister goes to, to goes to college all of a sudden she's got a girlfriend right it's like it was like that it was like this kind of deal for me uh so we did that one big circus show and I was all for it. we were starting to work on the next one and it was gonna just be it was gonna be this thing we were gonna do, like at the Crystal Ballroom every couple of months, big, big shows. And then first something went wrong in whatever meetings between Tony and the Crystal Ballroom guys uh-huh. where they were like the funding was cut or they weren't so sure. It was all seeming kind of unsure. So I wasn't in those meetings, which is a mistake I never made again. But yeah. <laughs> just something happened and then Tony moved to Chicago. So so there I am and there's like I've done this once. I've done one big, massive, successful circus show mm-hmm. and I didn't want to stop. Like it felt very right to me. I, I liked it and it yeah. felt like this cool thing I wanted to explore. Like I'll be a ring the ringmaster of a circus, yeah? And then the circus <laughs> is like gone. So what I did was I took all of those freaky circus performers from Sinferno and, and uh that I'd met through Chaosmosis and stuff, and combined them with a lot of these bouteau dancers and experimental music guys that were from my whole scene um, of like 36 invisibles and all that and radon and i made a new show called societas insomnia and societas insomnia was a great show it was super dark and like frightening it was all supposed to happen in this world of nightmares and we were like the company that creates the nightmares yes so it would from the the scenes would involve people portraying like people that were asleep and having these nightmares and then they would encounter us maybe sort of a, maybe kind of a hellraiser kind of way uh-huh. like we were this we were this group of people that existed in the mysterious nightmare world or beings yeah and so it was through that that i eventually hung from hooks at first i had this guy dave han who did a, a group called pure that did suspension performance in seattle he came down and was kind of our hook master for the first uh, well for, for all for the entirety of society oh, you say it so so blithely, you gotta have names for these things. It's a job, you know. He's the guy who's in charge of all the hooks, because you know it's no it's no simple matter running a hook suspension performance. There, there's like there's in in the backstage you gotta set up kind of like a clean room, like you would for a minor surgery or something, and it's for real. They have instrument trays and everything. There's an autoclave to sterilize everything, and you know plastic sheeting. And, I mean, it's like you're back there on kind of a production basis over the course of the course of two hours. You're doing this to you know six or seven people. And I mean, we didn't, it wasn't just hooks in the back. It was hooks in the chest and it was people hanging upside down from hooks in their knees and people sticking big meat skewers through their face and stuff. And like, there was, there was a lot of, there was a lot of really crazy. Once you, once you say, Hey, I've got this show and I want you, the crazy hook piercing guy from Seattle to come up with scenarios that are like the most terrifying and disturbing nightmare visions you can possibly do with your troop of people that do this all the time and don't mind if things hurt a whole lot or like really <laughs> cause body horror or whatever. Like that's that's what they love. They love it. Yeah. So uh yeah, we we got into some pretty crazy spots. So in the first episode, I did not hang from hooks and I was kind of a nightmare king. I was like the guy yeah. that was sort of in charge of the whole deal. Uh-huh. And then my my collab I should mention, my my collaborator and major co producer on that show is a guy named David Heifetz, who was known as the Fire Ninja. I knew him from from uh from dante's from sinferno cabaret and he was a wonderful wonderful fire performer who did fire staff and fire whip and rope dart which is like a big weight at the end of a at the end of a rope kind of like a, like you see him in kung fu movies sometimes right he had those and and sword he was great so in this in these shows he was sort of another leader type character, and he ran all the fire people, whereas I ran kind of these Bouteau people and all that. They, they were like my followers. All the fire people were all like his followers. And then Dave had all the hook people. But we were all part of the same company and I was the boss, yeah? So, in the second episode, the fire king character, there was like a coup d'etat, and he he took over from me. Him him and all the fire people like conspired against us and created a situation where they stole my power and they hung me up from hooks. Um, Come on. Seriously. Yeah. And, and it was like, I mean, it was planned. It, well, I mean, I, I wrote the damn thing. It was my, it was my show. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, and it, you know, I, I had never done hook suspension before. And it was as I was writing the second show, I just realized this is what had to happen. I, I realized like this is where the story's going. And I've just I've got to do this, you know. So uh, <laughs> Dave, the hook master, he insisted that if I was going to do it, I couldn't do my first time on stage. Because this doesn't happen to most people, but some people experience pretty drastic shock reactions the first time they go up on hooks. Because there's just a lot; it hurts a lot. Yeah, it hurts so much that it's to say that to say that it's painful kind of doesn't cover it. It's a it's a real <laughs> transportive, mind-altering thing. <laughs> From yeah. Just the endorphins and the, yeah. the it's it's crazy. So some people really react very strongly to it seizures or whatever and so so he, he hung me up for the first time ever in like a garage in Seattle uh, with some people around and you know everybody being we didn't have to do it like a show so everyone could be very careful and keep an eye on me and all that and my first time two in the chest two in the back and went up and wait a minute how, what did they do did they, what are they put in you well here's how you go they, there's there's an initial piercing needle yeah. that makes makes the initial puncture and you back it up with a hook. The hooks are they're based on big fishing hooks like shark hooks. But of course shark hooks have barbs on them so they won't come back out. So back in the back in the old days they would actually use shark hooks and grind the barbs off of them. But nowadays even even by the time that I was doing it it's enough of a thing that there are companies that manufacture suspension hooks that are like like shark hooks. It's an that, industry. Yeah like shark hooks but they're made out of surgical steel and don't have any barbs on them so you get this piercing needle of the same kind you would use if you were going to get your nose pierced or something and you back it up with the hook you pinch the skin and roll it so it kind of separates the epidermis from the dermis so you're not you're not going through the the bottom layer of the skin just going through kind of like that flexible top layer and then you just just shove it right through there and it's like a, a crunch like you can feel it go through all that tissue and so the needle goes through first, and the hook follows right after it, and then it's just it's there in your back. I mean, you got this big hook back there, and uh, they they make locking ones too, where you can you can actually close it and lock it. Uh-huh. Uh Although I never used those. Um, for some reason, I just never did, did. Did you
0: Did you scream? No. And you didn't. You didn't scream. Didn't cry. No. No nothing. No. 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 Nothing like that. What did you do? Well, you couldn't. I mean, like, was it like? I can't show, I can't show them this, how, how horrible this is or what.
1: No, no. You know, I felt like in preparing myself to do it, I felt that it was really important for me to get into a real zen out kind of quasi meditative state. Uh, just because I, I mean, I knew how intense it was going to be. And I suppose I was kind of trying to, to guard myself but you from it. can't prepare
0: for that, can you?
1: Yeah, I I can, <laughs> I can, and I did. So when it went through, I was fine. I just took a big deep breath and then blew it all out. And I mean, it it was crazy. And I remember, um, there's photographs actually that were taken at my first suspension in that garage where I'm 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 hanging up there, and my the skin on my chest is stretched up so high that I'm looking through it down at the camera, like I'm looking down the space between my big stretched up skin right here and like my shoulder at a, at a photographer and my eyes are as big as saucers you know i'm, yeah. I'm like in shock yeah uh, but no i was cool i'm cool you know <laughs> i've been through a lot of crazy stuff tom even you know from when i was a little kid really painful stuff and crazy you know crazy stuff what do you mean? so well well you know like i just um i've been injured a lot or i've been like Strapped to tables in like your old psych ward for considerable periods of time. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, so you know, it's all all that. I felt like I kind of drew upon those experiences of childhood uh, and and youthful uh, entrapment, and I don't know. I was just I'm cool like that, you know. In that first show, I hung up there for an hour and a half. Hour and a half on hooks, which. All the, all the hook guys that do it all the time, they were all telling me I couldn't do it. They're like, you're not going to be able to do it, and we're going to watch you. Did, did you go through phases? Yeah, yeah. At first, there's definitely it's – a, it's a rush and a panic, and then uh-huh. a, a real calm kind of sets in
0: after a while. That um, But the pain's still there.
1: The pain changes. Uh-huh it doesn't go away, but I mean, you go into shock the same as, you know, a person can get his hand blown off. And then after a little while, it's kind of like, doesn't hurt as much. Right. And you yeah. can, you can get up and you know, all these wartime stories of, you know, he dragged himself all the way back to the, to the base with one leg or whatever. This, this is, it's a little bit like that. Right. So um, yeah, the initial, the initial sensation when you first go up off your feet, is yeah, just so much pain and sort of a panic response. It's just like you're in danger and what are you going to do? But of course you're not in danger really. And I think that's, there's a trust, there's a relinquishment of control Uh that was always a big part of the experience for me as well. Uh A big part of it, that like conquering of the fear because you know Mm -hmm. that if you tell them not to do it, they won't do it. You know, like if you're, you can be right there and the hooks are already in you and the, the, the ropes are going up to the pulleys and it's about to happen. And you could still be like, no, way! don't do this. Don't do it. I don't want to do it. Right. And every time, no matter how many times I did it, I almost did. I almost told him to stop. There's like some part of my brain that's like, "What? Well, just tell him not to do it. It's going to hurt so much. It's just common sense. You would say. I, yeah. There's yeah. this self-preservation <laughs> instinct that's trying to make me not do it, even though I've decided I want to do this. The whole, again, it was my idea. Right. And, and, and especially when you're on stage. There's like 300 people there and they've all paid 20 bucks to come into this show. And it's like, this is it. It's, it's the show, right? And like if I, if I blow it, if I was to panic right then and be like, no, wait, stop, don't do it. It would be humiliating and ruin well, everything. You know, there's the show must go on and there's the show must go well, the on. The show must go on. <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a conditional statement, Tom. Uh, and so, yeah, that, that was always a big part of for me, that like conquering of the fear, mm-hmm. the really strong impulse to not do it. And then being like, oh, no, I'm going to do it. And kind of trusting these guys, like they've pierced me the right way and they've got the hooks all set up and the pulley is all set up right and they're going to take care of me. It's going to be all right. And then you go up and I mean, you're up there, you're up in the air and like, you know, like in a way that there's not a lot of other ways to be that, that much, like not under your own power, just hanging up there. Right. I mean, I'm not like holding on to anything. It's, it hurts like crazy. And then, yeah, there's a calm, there's a like. I'm trying to regulate my breath and I'm trying to because of course also it's a show in the case in the case of psychophysiological insomnia I would go up and try to behave like I'm panicking and going crazy because that's what the characters doing but to actually not be <laughs> right <laughs> so that was, there's a whole there's a whole challenge there there's like a performative <laughs> challenge of like I'm acting like a guy that's completely freaking out <laughs> and then under that I'm like actually staying calm And under that, I am completely freaking out. (laughs) It's a weird weird discipline. Um, Are you done with that? Uh, What, hook suspension? Yeah, I think I am. I haven't done it in a long time. Uh, Hey, can we take a break? I got to... uh... Yeah,
0: yeah, we'll take a little break here, and uh, uh, it won't seem like it, but go ahead. I'm going to do it. I'll be right back. oh my Need upon me. Yes. Now we're back, and uh, uh, I wonder how much of the urgency of the last part of the, the, your your description of hanging had to do with the fact that you had to take a piss. It might have been it. <laughs> Although it was, well, was yeah, you know, it's, it's, it, the, the memory
1: of the thing is pretty intense. Yeah. As well. Yeah. So the question is, have, am I done with it? And I think yeah. I am. You know, I I did it several times. It's not like this is a one time thing that I did. I, I did it um, at that show, and then. After the first four Societas Insomnia shows, we then did one big show that had the entirety of the the, the, the story in it that was like a four-hour-long, big, yeah. epic show at the old Sunday Lounge. Wow. Yeah, it was good. And so I, I did it again in that show, and then I ended up suspending in this crazy show we did called um, The Infernal Circus. Mm-hmm. Where it was like, I was William Batty, my ringmaster character, and Nick the Creature was the devil, and I was like, William Batty realizing that he was trapped in hell and and being forced to perform for the devil. I, I suspended in that show. I suspended in a weird like a haunted house one time and some private stuff, too. Like there's a there's a gathering. There's a December 11th gathering that happens once a year where all the all those people get together in private and just do stuff. And so I suspended at those as well. You know, it was something I did quite a number of times Uh and after a while, I guess I had just done it. I guess yeah. I just had done it. Yeah. I stopped doing the Societas Insomnia shows, and that was really the whole reason for me ever doing it was was for performance. This was something that um, a lot of the other hook guys that I knew, suspension guys I knew at that time, uh, I don't think they looked down on that exactly, but it was very different from their reasons for doing it because they all just wanted the, this profound experience or wanted to know it's different for them some of them love the the transportation and the trance-like aspect of it and some of them love this kind of the like they're proving it it's a, a test of their strength and a test of their resolve and you know there, there's different reasons for doing it but pretty much none of them got into it because it was like a show they were writing <laughs> <I> know, <laughs> you know uh, so it was always weird to describe that to them oh, yeah. just to be like yeah i'm just doing this because like it's what it's what my character had to do in the show yeah. and i just what the, you know, this, this thing that I was dreaming up that was like, what was going to happen in Societas Insomnia just required that I
0: do it. <laughs> you know, one thing that, that only pretty much people who know you know about you is that you've pretty much raised two sons. Oh, that's correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How old are they now?
1: My eldest son is 19. And his name is? Alexis. Alexis. Alexis Salvador Mickens. And the youngest son? Uh, Constantine Shojiro Mickens is now 17. And where
0: are they? They're in San Diego. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I
1: when uh when I met you uh, first,
0: I remember you bringing both of them to to parties, and I'm going like, man, Noah's really young. What's he? He has two sons. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I I had my
1: first son before I even moved to Portland, mm-hmm. uh, and then had my second mm-hmm. son shortly thereafter. And uh, you know, my wife and I, Robin, were together at that time. And uh, even when I first met you, I believe we were we were yeah. sort of in a rocky final period of our relationship, but still mm-hmm. still mostly together during that mm-hmm. time. Then uh, we broke up once and for all, and the kids came to live with me, and they lived with me for years. I was a single dad, and so right, I had a whole double life of creating these performances and hanging out in the scene, but then really like waking up every morning and taking them to school, making them breakfast, and taking them to school. You know, had to be there
0: to pick them up, and you know, after work or whatever. But back then, I had jobs too. Yeah, (laughs) and so uh, and then there was the, the the time I did the TV story on you. Oh yeah, yeah. And which one of your sons said that? Alexis. What did he say? He said, <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, I said something about how, uh, you know, uh, it was sometimes hard to balance my life as a yeah. performer and, and with my life as a father. Yeah. And Alexis said, yeah, like we've missed the circus three years in a row. It's funny because that's before I didn't even have a circus at that time. Yeah. He, he was referring yeah. to circus shows that would come uh-huh. to town. That we and it was able to see. Uh It was true.
0: Oh, it was true.
1: Yeah, every, oh, okay. every year the circus would come, and we kept on not being able to go. Oh. Uh, yeah, it's, it's so hilarious, because like I said, that, I, yeah. I was not at that time producing circuses at all. So yeah. uh, so he just, he just thought know. he'd embarrass Dad. <laughs> I think it's something <laughs> – you know, it, it's weird. It, it was in that moment that I really – as the interview was happening that I yeah. realized that uh, – It meant so much to him. Yeah. And so, of course, we immediately went to see a circus at the earliest opportunity. (laughs) And I eventually started my own circus, and they got to meet all those guys and and all that. How did it turn out? How have your sons turned out? Oh, they're great. So, yeah, it was after after several years of uh, of living with me here, they moved to live with their mother for a while. Uh uh, And then actually moved back here again for a while. Uh And then now they're living with their grandparents, their their mother's parents. Yeah. And uh, they're doing well. You know, it's not what I wanted to happen. I was hoping they would stay with me yeah. longer, but uh, they're doing great. And living with their grandparents has afforded them a certain level of stability that
0: I have never been able to offer. Uh, what, you know, what, what do you see of yourself in them?
1: Oh, a lot of things. They're both very, um, both very creative for one thing. Uh, Constantine uh, or Tino, as we call him, is uh, really into acting and theater and is part of a comedy sports and kind of improv sketch comedy world. Uh, In San Diego, through his school, and is starting to branch out into public performances with his school troupe as well. Uh, He's just very, he's very funny, and him and his friends, they make little comedy videos and put them on YouTube. Uh Him and Alexis both, they make make these kind of short films a lot and have like a, a YouTube presence for their work. He's just—he's real funny. Tino is he's very funny. Well, and very, is it time and for and either of them stylish. to move to
0: Portland and become weird again?
1: I believe Alexis is about to move to Portland. Really? Alexis, uh, the eldest son, he is uh, a DJ uh-huh. and makes electronic music. So he's been doing that a bunch in San Diego. Uh, so he's 19. He's 19. He's yeah. a man. He is. He's an adult. Wow. Yeah. So he—he—he he, he like plays in around the clubs in San Diego and uh-huh. and uh, has a whole circle of friends that are all these. Young DJs and young electronic music people in Southern California. How does that make you feel? Proud. Yeah. Extremely proud. Yeah. I feel like both of them are on to something that could really, that will uh, really blossom into whatever lifelong pursuits they take on as artists and creators and human beings, you know. Uh, whereas Alexis is, yeah, he's like works at Safeway. So he's, he's transferring to a Safeway in Portland and moving here in <laughs> December. Yeah. I told him, if he's got a full-time job at Safeway, he's doing better than almost anyone I know. Like, he'll, be, he'll be like so much more set up than most of my friends are.
0: Well, suppose he came to you and said, Dad, I think I like to get into suspension. Yeah, I mean, I, I, would, I, would,
1: I could introduce him to all the right folks. Oh, jeez. Yeah. No, I don't, I don't look at any of that as having been a, a mistake on I my part. I understand. I understand. Uh, I, I, think it, I mean, yeah, I imagine yeah. he would uh, derive a great deal from a, yeah. from a suspension. Awesome. It's an intense thing. You've yeah. got to try it out. You know, it's like anything. It's like you know, there's 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 those people that are like, man, if everybody just dropped acid, then yeah. the world, everybody should drop acid, right? I don't feel that everybody should drop acid. I feel like you know, it's fine, and from my own experiences, I can't honestly recommend against it. But uh, it's like that with hook suspension. It's not yeah. for everyone, and I feel right. like right. it's you know. Any, anyone could get something really good out of it, but for some people it would just be extremely negative experience, and they would just hate it so much and whatever. So it's right. like it's like right, that, right, you know. Right, right, yeah. But uh, no, if, if either one of my boys wanted to come get some hooks put in them, yeah, yeah for sure, for sure. <laughs> they, can, they can get the they can get the the, the four star treatment. Their dad their dad is like the the, the guy from Society of Insomnia there they you get, go. Make a couple phone calls and it right. all happen. All
0: right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, um, I I know that. A lot of the people that in your circles are somewhat like you but you know you're one of a kind That's That is, that is absolute, absolute fact and um you know thanks for sitting here and and talking to me for an hour and and uh i'm happy to be your friend and uh glad to know you and uh um, you're always interesting Ah, oh, you too johnny you know, it's like you said. You've been
1: you've been following this crazy stuff that I do since the very beginning, and that's it's meant a lot to me to to, to know you as the years have gone by and watch as as you've changed and I have as well. I think it's a, a cool kind of ongoing. Uh, it is friendship. it is.
0: okay. Thanks a lot. Good night, everybody. We're good.